Hello and welcome to the CityWire Ratings Radar podcast. The shops in England are open again today, which means it's time for the CityWire Ratings research team of Nisha Long and Frank Talbot to shine a light on the best bargains in the world of fund manager performance. My name's Richard Lander and joining us as usual to give the fund buyers angle is my CityWire colleague Angus Foote. So in a little while, Nisha will be looking at the global bond sector, uh, but I'm going to turn first this week to Frank. As you may recall, last week, Frank covered the Japanese equities sector. Uh, this week, he's shifted his geographic focus a little further west to the Asia-Pacific, excluding Japan, part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Bu- building on last week, uh, I'm going to look at uh, where I look at Japanese equity managers. I'm going to turn to the, the broader Asia-Pacific, ex-Japan sector. Um, one thing to note, when you're buying this sector, you are predominantly investing in China. So depending on the benchmark, that can range from 40% to close to 50%. And when you factor in greater China region of Hong Kong, Taiwan, some indices get up to sort of three quarters. So it's a big bet on China. And actually, I picked this topic uh, before the raft of new cases of COVID-19 in Beijing. Uh, But things are moving quite fast. Nevertheless, you know, I'm probably alone with, uh, sort of not alone rather, with a lot of you in thinking that the Chinese government is more capable of uh, controlling the outspread and the second wave than some other countries that we won't mention. Uh, so the, the, the first manager coming up uh, well in the ratings is Phil Lee. He manages the Mirai Asset Asia Growth Fund. He's come in at AAA on his debut, so to speak. So he's got three-year track record, and that's the point that we start assessing their risk-adjusted returns. Um, it's little wonder he's coming at AAA. He's generated 42% over the past three years, eight times the Asia X Japan index returns to the end of May. Year-to-date, funds up 2%, index is down 12%, doing a very good job. Um, at a geographic level, it's overweight China by about 10%, uh, but it's underweight Hong Kong with just 1% invested in Hang Seng listings. This is quite rare for a fund in this region to have so little in Hong Kong. Uh, it's Asia X Japan fund, so that means it excludes Australia and New Zealand from the index. It, uh, it balances a bit of that China exposure, um, but in terms of allocations, leading China, it's, you've got two of the bats, Alibaba's a 9% stake, Tencent's a 7% position. Technology as a whole is, is overweight, 31% versus 19% in the index. It's got a 2.5% position in Longi Green Energy Technology. This is the largest provider of solar cells in China. And given that China dominates the solar space, this is a big company. Uh, and it's a fund you probably typically uh, expect to perform poorly when markets have a downturn. It did in 2018, fund was down 21%, index down 14%. And a lot of that comes from that higher weighting to China, be a key contributor to that underperformance. But obviously this time out, China's done a lot better and has protected the portfolio. So the next manager I want to talk about is, uh, is Morgan Stanley's Christian Hugh. So... Christian has emerged as a, as a bit of a star for Morgan Stanley. He runs a variety of growth-focused portfolios, Global Equity, Global XUS, and Asia-Pac. Uh, and he's, he's, he's a bit good. I, probably like you, don't associate Morgan Stanley with asset management, but he's really been putting them on the map. I'd say he's one of the preeminent equity managers in the world, particularly on the growth side. He's available everywhere, US, USITs, you name it. Uh, he's been consistently rated since January 15. He's the highest rated manager in this sector. Most of that time he was AAA rated. 
Uh, and in this space, he runs the, the very catchily named uh, MSINVF, Asia Opportunity Fund, which I think must stand for Morgan Stanley Investment Fund, uh, original. Um, it, it's, it's another fund massively overweight China. It's got 61% there. Uh, and it's against that same Asia X Japan index. It's got overweights to India, and that's kind of seen as a sort of defensive ballast. It's, it's looked at as one of the highest quality markets in, in emerging Asia, certainly of all the emerging markets, just because of the, the composition and the way it's made up. Um, bucking the trend, though, as a surprise for a fund that I featured on the podcast, he's, a, he's massively underweight technology. He's got very little compared to the, the index, and surprisingly, it's done very well. He has, though, um, generated 58% over the past three years, 12 times the index return. So he's done very well. He's got a colossal overweight, loves taking really big bets. Colossal overweight to Tau Education Group. So it's 8% versus 0.5% of the index. It provides after-school education for Chinese school children. Obviously, that's been massively in demand lately. Don't think it's a new position by any means. Uh, he's also got a chunky uh, 5% stake in a company which barely registers in the index, Foshan Haitian Flavoring, which is a Chinese manufacturer of sauces and uh, other flavorings. So uh, if you want really aggressive Asia, he's certainly one to think about. And uh, yeah, definitely check him out. Quite interesting, though, that these funds, I mean, particularly the second one you talked about, has such a big allocation to China, a big weighting to China. Because one of the things that we've been hearing quite a lot on the fund buyer side is people talking more and more about China as a standalone allocation. So it'd be quite interesting to see how that develops and, that, and what if impact that has on this sector. Because again, when we did a discussion with private bank CIOs back in March, April time, they were all looking very closely at um, their asset allocation in that region and talking about, most of them were talking more and more about China as a standalone uh, bucket for them. So I, I, I guess these funds that have a very big weighting um, to China in the Asia Pacific sector are, are going to find themselves uh, up against the China only funds in some instances. Yeah, possibly. I mean, you'd have been not looking particularly good if you hadn't been overweight China in this sector for the past five years, despite the volatility of Chinese equities. When I talk about China here, I'm actually not talking about a share market. Typically, these people invest in the, that, you know, mm. Shanghai Connect listed stuff. So it would have been really tough to outperform. Uh, and and, and they've, they've had so many good years in the past five years, Chinese equities. And again, they've had a good crisis. Right. Are there, you, you talked about China and talked about India. Are there, what are the other areas that uh, people are looking there? I spoke to another emerging markets fund manager last week, not specifically Asia X Japan, and he he said his favorite area uh, in Asia was Vietnam. Are there any people going there or do, does that, is that what people? Vietnam, I remember Templeton Asia had a massive overweight to Vietnam uh, not long ago. That's one of the, the Mobius portfolios, something like 40% in Vietnam at one stage. I hope I'm not misquoting him, um, but Vietnam tends to be more of a frontier play. So if you look for an emerging Asia fund, that's where you're gonna find uh, high stakes there. These generalist sort of Asia X Japan funds, typically Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea to a lesser extent. South Korea is, is a large chunk of the index, but people don't particularly like South Korea on governance concerns. So it tends to be the more developed Asian nations that make it into these broad Asia X Japan funds. 
Right. And if you go to South Korea, I mean, the index there is massively, it's Samsung and, and something else, isn't it, basically? Samsung's a huge component, LG Electronics is another huge component. So yeah, the big tech names. And Samsung's looking at the index and the way it's changed in the region. Samsung was quite a long time, the largest company in the index, but because of the rise of the bats, the, the Samsung looks quite small in comparison. I think seven and a half percent of the index is Alibaba now, 7% is Tencent. So it's uh, the composition of the index has changed as Chinese technology has emerged as one of you know, the real contenders on the global stage. Excellent. Good. Okay. Well, uh, very fast gear change from uh, Asia and China uh, and uh, Nisha, uh, because you've been you were on the Europe Eurozone bonds last week, as I recall, and this week it's global bonds, and particularly with a focus on the higher end of the rating scale. Is that is that right? Yeah. Um, so looking at long dated government bonds. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we had the ES ECB announcement. Um, but um, last week, we had the Fed conference. Um, and one of the statements uh, made by the chair, which really struck a chord with me, was a sentence to make loans to solvent entities with the expectation that the loans will be repaid. Now, on the back of this, high yield bonds sold off on the close of that meeting. And the statement actually put an emphasis on high quality bonds being the main beneficiaries of support through the Fed's stimulus program. Just before, so, just go back to the European one, because that was yeah. another 650 million euros of yes. bond buy. And it again, was. you know, focused on, on the southern states and their government bonds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just last week, actually, just to mention the ECB again, um, Germany, for example, during record demand for their 30 year debt. Um, that was on the 10th of June. And in the same week, um, Greece, Spain and Ireland also saw record demand for their long dated bonds. So that's why I thought the focus on long dated government bonds, you know, longer maturity, people seem to be latching onto these at the moment. So and who, I, who's the winner here? The winner is if you're looking at longer maturity, as Provoker's debt managers, I'd like to highlight Steve Reiser and Kurt Nolson of Aviva Investors, both AAA rated managers. And they've held this since May 2019. Um, they co-managed the Aviva Investors Global Sovereign Bond Fund. And as you know by now, um, I think that anyone who's held a AAA rating through this pandemic is doing really well. And these are some of those managers. Um, the fund has a high return and low risk profile compared to peers. And that's what kind of, you know, fund that you want at this moment. They have overweight, coming back to the data securities, seven to 10 year maturity bracket is overweight position. Also the 20 to 30 year bracket as well. And they are underweight short term one to three year maturities. And this over the last three years has made a massive difference because long dated has outperformed. So you look, if you look at the 10 plus year maturity bonds, they've returned to around 22% over the last three years. And if you compare that to the shorter dated one to three year, they've returned about 4%. So you want to be, you know, at the longer end of the curve. But um, for this fund, they have jumped on US treasuries. They've also got Czech Republic in there, which is quite surprising. But Japan, long dated government bonds also in there with the highest coupon rates around, you know, 2.7, going down to 0.1 in US. But um, performance over the last three years, it's been pretty good for a bond fund, 13%. Um, so they're doing, you know, really well on that. 
I, I, just, I mean, they've, they've had a great run, but, you know, these auctions in Germany, Greece, etc., etc., Ireland, Germany, I'm guessing, was negative yield because yeah, yeah. things in Germany usually are, and Ireland and, and, you know, I don't know, not very much if they were positive at all. So, you know, are these funds best days behind them in terms of, you know, if you were to buy now, you'd be guaranteed to lose money on your German bit and, and yeah, not very um, much on the you, others. Yeah, absolutely. If you're looking income focused completely, yes, you're losing out. If you're looking at capital, so you're looking at your total returns going on and buying and selling in the secondary market, you know, these are still a viable option, you know, for investors. Um, they're still doing okay. You still have a government backed security there. Um, so it is, you know, still a defensive play. And you're not getting as much as you would have done, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago even. But it is still viable. You know, you can still play these bonds in a secondary market, for example. Um, and just jumping a bit now, the second manager I want to um, highlight is Mark Stacey of Blue Bay. Triple A, I mean, double A rating manager, just giving him an extra name there. Um, but he manages a different type of fund. It's more focused on financials. Um, so he manages the Blue Bay Financial Capital Bond Fund. And I want to mention this because it invests in subordinated debt securities issued by financial institutions, which include the tier one and tier two banks, um, capital and US perpetual um, preferred stock. Now he recently spoke to Citywide and as we know, banks, you know, what they were seen as the villain of the 2008 collapse. But what's happened now, banks can actually serve a much more positive role in this post-COVID-19 world. And if you think about it, the financial institutions, coming back to you know, the policy statements coming out, they will be crucial in aiding you know, return to normality because if the banks are being asked to make use of government guarantees and lend to corporates you know, that are desperately seeking this liquidity. So you know, there's this you know, extra stimulus even for them. You know, the banks have got the incentive to lend out as well. So I think... The bond world, as we saw it in the 2008, after that crisis, slightly different to what we're seeing now. You know, everything is shored up in a sense. Um, and Stacey as well, the fund, his funds up at 21% over the last three years. And again, that's not bad for a bond fund, but I have to say it is a higher risk one because you are investing in subordinated debt, which ranks after all of the debt, you know, if a company falls into liquidation. So you have to, you know, expect that, you know, taking on higher risk, but you are getting returns. But that's the movement that we're seeing in the bond market. People needing the higher returns, higher yield, going into these kind of strategies. But Mark Stacey, you know, he's been pretty consistent, you know, throughout his tenure. Angus, from the fund buyers angle, any, any yeah, views There's a couple there? of things strike me, actually. It's, it's really interesting to hear Nisha talking about, I guess, really, to summarise, part of that is what a bond fund's for. You know, the old idea that your bond fund was the safe part of your portfolio and it delivered a solid, reliable return. And there's been this, you know, everyone's talked about the hunt for yield, haven't they, for months, if not years. But it's quite interesting when I have this discussion with fund buyers and, and talk, people put forward all kinds of suggestions of what you should be using instead of bond funds. Should you move, do alternatives now do what bond funds used to do? And the answer that comes back quite often uh, is, is or the word that gets used all the time is stability. That's what people want these things for. They want stability. So the idea that bond funds are kind of had their day because the, the returns aren't so attractive, I think is 
bit of a, a highly, well, I would say it's highly debatable. I think that mm. the, the stability that people need, I, I don't really see where else you go for that. No, exactly. Also, um, the income, they need an income. So if you want to say, send your kid to private schools, you know, this, you need that stable income coming through, which these provide. Um, yeah. You don't get that just from a return fund. So no, I think that, I mean, it's interesting as well when we talk about fixed income, because the other side of that, of course, I did a discussion session last week with a group of fund selectors and a portfolio manager who were talking about high yield. And I expected that discussion to be you know, more technical than it turned out to be. The focus of it was very much around what sectors should you be in. So that what they were concerned about was which sectors are going to flourish uh, post-pandemic, where are the defaults likely to be, you know, should I steer clear of airlines, whatever, the, the kind of conversation really that you might have around equities, but yeah. it, 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 very different to the, you know, the your big global sovereign funds where people are looking for that sort of stability. I mean, high yield is not the place to look for, the, you know, the stable bedrock of your portfolio, no. I don't think. No, I mean, one of the things I was reading last week was property, which you can either invest in as an alternative or indeed buy property groups bonds so who knows what's going to happen there but you know you've had shopping centers which provided five-year leases always the rent would always go up much like any other type of bond now you know you're probably going to be moving to to uh turnover based rents uh, and it's a completely different animal it's gone from being you know a great banker for pension funds to something really really unstable it's, that's going to you know where the returns are going to vary as as consumer shopping power varies so all change as you say so yeah thank you uh guys i think that's and nisha that's uh, probably enough uh for this week i think it's been very interesting two completely different parts of the market so uh for now we'll wrap up and we'll be back again next week with two completely different sectors i'm sure so Goodbye from me and goodbye from everybody. <laughs>